Good morning, church. What a blessing it is to be here. Uh, It always has been, and it always will be. This congregation uh, is held in high esteem by Diane and I. We have a great love for the group here uh, over the years. Been able to be here for some time uh, and uh, to know you, although I I don't know very many of you. (laughs) A lot of new faces, and what a blessing that is. But we're glad to be here this week. Appreciative of the work that goes on, uh, and very much respect Brent uh, and uh, the work that he does here. So it's a real blessing to be able to join in that this week and to be with uh, Jonathan to get to know him and to sort of sing together. I, after the lesson this morning, I think that's going to work out pretty good. Uh, I really do in terms of the things that I have in my mind. In fact, there's probably a lot of times when I get to be able to say, "You remember what Jonathan said?" <laughs> and, and that'll work good. Uh, that'll work good. Uh, challenge for you. Characterize your life in six words or less. You know, that's a challenge to think about your whole life, the purpose of your life is, and to boil it down to that. It might be that if we could come up with something, uh, it would might just be a hopeful uh, desire that that's what we would want to be, that the assessment of what we would hope that our life would be. Uh, I think about my own life, I'll leave that to the preacher who preaches my funeral, and hopefully they'll give him more than six words when that time comes. But there's one self-characterization, I think, found in Scripture that I would desire to be mine, and that's the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, where he says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. We say, well, preacher, that's more than six words. Well, it is, but it's not. In the original language, it is only six words. It literally says, to live Christ, to die gain. These are words of the apostle, of course, recorded in contextually in some of the last words that we have, the apostle said. So it's near the end of his life. It might even say, well, sort of a eulogy type of statement, but the apostle did not intend it to be a eulogy. He wasn't reflecting back on his life as much as he was speaking to the brethren at Philippi and saying, this is what you need to be. This is what your life needs to be about. about." In those short words, he presents two purposes or two focuses of life. The idea of living and the idea of dying. That's why I say, listen to what Jonathan said this morning. It's about living and dying and the choices that we make. But the apostle says, to live is Christ. Now notice that he didn't say that I live just for Christ. In fact, that's not all that he says in this passage. He certainly did live for Christ. But to say to live is Christ is a deeper statement. It's not just one of the pursuits of his life. It is the very core of who he is. And I think we could all recognize that the Apostle Paul, as we know him, fits that bill. He was an extraordinary man. He begins his story, of course, as the Lord's most ardent enemy, as one who stood against Christ, yet his life becomes defined by the exaltation of Jesus and about the honoring of Jesus. In the text of Scripture, we could, might very well conclude that he was responsible for telling more people about Jesus Christ than anyone else that we know in the Scriptures. He planted churches in the most popular cities of the world. People, cities were, had deep pagan roots and had no idea of who God was. He told them about Jesus. 
He preached to peasants. He preached to potentates. He took the gospel that the Lord had given him around the world. When we follow him through the book of Acts, we recognize that a man who had that type of passion for Christ led a very difficult life. In fact, you look at the life of the Apostle Paul, you realize that his mission and his passion did not lead him to world fame. It did not lead him to a life, you see, of pleasure or even self-satisfaction of the things of this life. It led him to a life of suffering, to a life of great persecution. He was hated by his own brothers. He was betrayed. He was chased from city to city. And as far as we know, in the end, he was imprisoned justly and executed by his own government. So you look at the Apostle Paul's life and you think, how would you summarize that? Where, what, is, what was his life all about? And we come to these words. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Well, my intention is for the time we're going to be together in these lessons is to focus on the text of the book of Philippians. Draw out some passages from, those, from the work of the apostle. To not only to see the life of the apostle Paul as he lived for Christ. But to see how what our life would look like if we were living for Christ. If this was ultimately a characterization of who we are. How would it play out in our life to be, to have this purpose and this perspective? So we're going to back up a little bit in the text here and take a closer look at the passages that uh, were just read a few moments ago. Beginning in Philippians chapter 1 in verse 12. And I I put the passages up here. I know it might be kind of hard for you to read, but you can open your Bible to read along because I want us to see all of the text together. The Apostle writes, I want you to know, brothers... That what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, the reason I put all these words up here, this whole text, is uh, is because I think that we sometimes overlook things because we don't look at the bigger, the, the whole text itself. Or maybe we miss an overall thematic aspect of the text. If you were to look at everything that Paul said here in this paragraph, could you miss it all, what was really important to him? Could you everybody read this and come away saying, well, I'm not real sure what Paul thinks is important. Paul's passion for his mission is easy to see. He focuses on preaching boldly, on proclaiming Jesus, on advancing the gospel. He says, so that Christ might be honored, whether in life or in death, this is what it's all about. The apostle never lost sight to all the things he experienced. He never lost sight of the context of his life that Jesus had provided for him. The work before him. And what I find fascinating is that Paul, in the situation of being incarcerated in a Roman prison, could look back on his life and find that mission in the context of his suffering. 
that even what he was going through right then and there had something to do with advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I find that challenging. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He says, so that my imprisonment is for Christ. You know, we suffer some, don't we? I mean, some more than others. Maybe none of us like the apostle did, but we suffer. Do we, do we describe our suffering? Do we even look at our suffering in the context of how God will be honored in this? Or how the gospel will advance because of the things that I'm experiencing? Paul never lost sight of that. That's part of what he means when he says to live is Christ. But he says here that my imprisonment was for Christ. What does that mean? Well, certainly he was in prison because he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he was where he was at because he was serving the purposes by preaching the gospel. But I think it goes further than that. I believe what the apostle is getting across to us here is that his imprisonment continues to serve the purpose of the gospel even as it takes place. It wasn't just the reason why he was where he was. It was what was happening as he was where he was that the gospel was continuing to advance. And that was That's a perspective, as I mentioned, that really challenges me in my perspective of my own life. Why is this happening to me now? Why am I going through this? Can I anyway look at what I've been doing in my life and what my life has been around and saying that, okay, God's going to use this. He is using this for his own purposes and the purposes of my own life. That that's the, th- that's the theme of who I am, even as I suffer, is that I'm living for Christ. That Christ, to live, is Christ. Now, verse 15 through 18, Paul says he's rejoicing that the gospel is being preached. Who doesn't rejoice the gospel being preached, right? If you're a Christian, you're rejoicing the gospel being preached. But Paul goes further than that. He says, even if it's preached by selfish, envious brothers who wish to do me harm. Well, wait a minute now. Sometimes that kind of takes, you see, front and center in our life. If the fellow who's doing it really doesn't like us. And really wants, you see, it working seemingly work against us. And maybe in some ways is even our enemy. Paul says, well, some preach it because they want to do me harm. Other preach it from love and good motives. What then? Interesting way to look at it, isn't it? Interesting question to even ask. What then? He says that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this, I will rejoice. He doesn't rejoice, I believe, because he knows that those pretenders will get what's coming to them in the end. Or because he feels no personal pain from their words. He is truly suffering from what others have done to him. But he's rejoicing because to live is Christ. Because his whole life is built around and focused on the aspect of preaching the gospel. So he will rejoice whenever that happens, under whatever circumstance that takes place. He will rejoice. He relishes in the fact that there are those other than himself. Who teach people the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you see how selfless that perspective is? Can you see how different that perspective is than sometimes what we see around us? In verse 19, Paul says, for I know. Some translations say, for this I know. 
Which is an interesting thing for Paul to say. This is a time of great uncertainty for the apostle, is it not? Will he be released from prison or will he be executed? How will things turn out? Paul doesn't really know. Now he does have a great confidence that he's going to be released and be able to serve as well the preaching of the gospel even to Philippi and other places. But he doesn't know that for sure. It's not been revealed to him. So amid this great uncertainty of life, Paul expresses what he does know. He says, for this I know, that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, when you read that statement, what do you think? You think, most often we think, well, Paul thinks he's going to get out of prison. And maybe that's what he is talking about. The word deliverance is often used to refer to those spiritual deliverance or salvation. The idea that it looks beyond just the present circumstances, that God's going to ultimately deliver me in the end because he is going to save me. In fact, the American Standard Version has salvation here. This will turn out for my salvation. I believe that's the best rendering. I believe that's the best understanding of the perspective of the apostle. What does he know in these times of uncertainty? He knows that God will deliver him. There are a lot of things I don't know, but this I know is that God will deliver me. And one reason I think this is so, because he says it is his eager expectation and hope. The term eager expectation, or some translations say earnest expectation, is a compound word that literally means to stretch the neck out. So you're waiting for someone to come, and you're looking out the window, and you're anticipating, and you you, you know it's coming any moment. Paul is stretching out his neck, seeking for the coming of the Lord and his own salvation. This is his hope. And that's the reason I would conclude that that's the way the word deliverance ought to be considered in the passage before that. That he's really talking about spiritual deliverance. Whatever happens to Paul, he knows that God will provide for him spiritually. If Paul would sing a song, he'd sing, it is well with my soul. <laughs> Even from the confines of a prison, he would say, it is well with my soul. And then verse 20 he says, I will not at all. Be ashamed. He has a real expectation and hope that God will not let him down. Jonathan touched upon this even this morning. God going to let you down? Do you really believe that whatever happens, God will not let you down? The verb phrase to be ashamed means to feel shame for yourself. We might use the word disgraced. As though someone starts something that they think is going to turn out a certain way, but then it doesn't turn out that way. They think it'll have this result, but it doesn't turn out that way. It doesn't have those results, and people are watching. And people see, well, it didn't turn out the way you thought it would. Or the idea that there is a disgracing in the context of one's life or actions. Some thought that Paul had already been disgraced. They had the mission of preaching for God, but now he's in prison. Many times you see there, there, there are some of those even that turned away and betrayed the apostle because of that disgrace. But Paul recognized that even though others might be ashamed of who he was and where he was, that he did not have to be ashamed and more than that, that he would not be ashamed because God's mission would be accomplished in him. He would be bold. He would be confident. He would have no regrets. Let me take, take a minute and think about how powerful a perspective that is about your whole life. You can look at your life, I can look at mine. Where it's been, what I've done. you have any regrets? To say at the end of your life or near the end of your life, to live as Christ, there are no regrets. Powerful perspective to have. 
is a level of spirituality that I believe the apostle challenges me with and wants me to have for my own. Paul used similar word in his letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He said, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. He goes on to say in verse 12, but I am not ashamed, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced he's able to guard until that day what would have been trusted to me. Paul's, you see, earnest expectation and hope was grounded in the promise of God. How could he have no regrets? Because he knew what God had promised. He knew what God has said. The idea of a life without regrets is not just whether or not everything has gone well or everything has been pleasurable, there's been no suffering, or even that there's been no disappointment. But a life that's based upon, solidly based upon the words of God and the confidence that I place in what he will do and what he has done. This confidence embodies a contentment. It's a contentment that I believe ought to be the atmosphere of our life. And if it is the atmosphere of our life, it sets us apart from every other person around us. If we truly are content in this way. Helps us live apart from the cares of the world in Hebrews chapter 13. Let your conduct, he says, let your conduct be uh, without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. When God's children can exhibit peace and contentment in their life in the face of great trouble, I believe Christ is honored in a way that he can be honored in our society above and beyond even public proclamations. And that's where I think Paul would lead us here. To live as Christ and to die as gain. Because it's all about honoring Christ. Verse 20. Now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. The New King James uses the term magnified there, which may be a little bit uh, better image for us. We know what it means to magnify something. You can't read it. So you put on these little glasses that you hang on your nose when you get older and it makes the words appear a little bigger. And so it helps a little bit until it doesn't. But you magnify it. So that you can see it. And that's what the word literally means. It means to enlarge. From the word megos means to make great. So Paul says Christ will be honored. Christ will be magnified. The Pharisees were said to enlarge the borders of their garments. So that they would be more conspicuous. So here's one guy's garment. But there's the fringes on that fellow's garment. He's really righteous. Because it magnified the aspect of what he wanted to portray to other people. The church was magnified in Acts chapter 5 by the miracles that were done by the apostles. It enlarged the purpose of Jesus for individuals, you see, to be able to see and experience the aspect of the miraculous power of Jesus Christ. Paul here in this particular sect says, that's what's going to take place and will take place in my body. Christ will be magnified. So, the question that we could pose here, is that what your life is about? Magnifying Christ. Making Christ larger than anything else. Enlarging the gospel of Jesus Christ and the message of Jesus Christ beyond all other things in the eyes of others. So that people, when they look, would see Jesus first. And interesting, Paul adds a little phrase here. He says, now as always. His confidence is that, his confidence is that even in his suffering here, what, and what's going to happen, the gospel is going to be 
proclaimed in advance. Jesus is going to be enlarged, but then he says, now as always. How often did Paul count on the Lord and Jesus came through him for him? How often did God rescue Paul? How often had Christ been enlarged by the events of Paul's life, no matter how difficult? You see, Paul had been left for dead, beaten unconscious. He'd been disgraced in the eyes of others, despised by his own brothers. Yet in all of that, this is what Paul's saying. Christ has always been magnified in what has happened to be in my life. He's always been enlarged. Now, as always, this is what will take place. Again, that's a powerful perspective in our life. We think sometimes, well, yeah, there have been times God's been working through me. There have been times when God's, you see, uh, had his hand in my life. But then there are other times when I wondered where he was. Paul says, no, to live is Christ. Christ has always been magnified in the things that God has provided for me to do. So Paul has seen God's hand in the most unusual places. From the pagan island of Malta, where the idol worshippers were falling down to worship him, and calling him God, to Jerusalem, where God's own people considered him to be a betrayer. And conspired to take his life. It didn't make any difference whether it was Malta or Jerusalem. God had always been there to deliver him and to provide for him. So he preached in palaces and prisons and in every circumstance because he continued to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The purpose of his life came through. Christ, I told you I was going to do that, didn't I, friend? I said, you lay that thing up there, I'm going to knock it over. My brother is Mike, you remember? <laughs> Some of you will get that, maybe. <laughs> the recognition that God was constantly working for his own glory is foundational to this perspective of what it means to live in Christ. I'm convinced that we need to reassess that sometimes. That what God is doing is not for me. What God is accomplishing is not for my glory. It's for His own glory. And because God calls us to work for His own glory, then our lives can be for Christ or in Christ. Consistently working for His own glory was a call for the disciples to consistently work for the glory of God as well. First Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says, Rejoice always, praying without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Paul saying, God's You see, God's got a purpose here in mind, and these are your responsibilities. You abstain from evil, you pray constantly before God, you hold fast to what is good and turn away from what is evil, and God will accomplish something in you. He will surely do it. Later on in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as it happened among you, and that we may be delivered from the wicked and evil men. But not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And He will, and we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. Notice verse 4. We have confidence about you. 
Well, that's not what he says. He says, we have confidence in the Lord about you. Where is his confidence raised? In what God is doing among his people if they put him first. You see, God's working for his own glory among his people. So there's a need for a consistent, lifelong commitment to God because God desires his wishes are being performed within the context of our lives and with the activity of our lives. John chapter 15, Jesus said, If you abide in me, which means to continually live in, and my words abide in you, you will ask in what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified. Sometimes we think, well, God give me what he wants, that would be really good for me. If God gives me what I desire as I abide in him, it's not for my good, it's for his good. He will be glorified when he gives me the things that I really desire, if I really desire the things that will bring him glory. And that's where the challenge is. Do we desire the things that will bring him glory, that will honor him? Paul says, to live as Christ. And then he says, in this context... In my body. Christ will be honored in my body. This phrase points directly, I believe, to the sufferings of Paul. He mentions his body here because, you see, he's suffering things physically as he even writes these words. There was a connection between his mission and the physical experiences of his body. Paul viewed his physical body as an instrument to be used to glorify Jesus even in the experience of suffering and weakness. In fact, I would sort of modify that say and say, especially in the experiences of suffering and weakness, Paul recognized that what was going on in his body would honor Jesus. There's a great truth here evident in this verse. I think it was concisely stated by Boyce in his commentary. He says, Christ must be magnified in the bodies of those who believe in him, or he will not be magnified at all. God is not magnified in political movements, earthly cathedrals, temples, or churches' houses, but in the bodies of Christians. I believe that's true. But it's something we miss sometimes, isn't it? What's going on in our personal life and the things that we are suffering have purpose. The purpose is that Jesus would be honored in what we suffer, in the things that we experience. So after cataloging his personal sufferings, the beatings, the imprisonments, being lost at sea, dangers from his own brothers, all the things that he had, even to the anxiety of the brethren that he was trying to teach. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. God had provided glorious opportunity for Paul, you see, to know about him. To experience things that he couldn't even talk to us about. Great revelation that he couldn't even repeat. Paul the Apostle had been given that great ability and privilege. But Christ would be honored. Not in the revelations that Paul could relate to you and me. But in the suffering that Paul would experience. And that was a lesson Paul himself learned. He tells us later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that a thorn was given him in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast that therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He goes on to say in that statement, I'm content. With persecutions. I'm content with suffering. 
How can you be content with suffering? Some of you folks are suffering every day, chronically, enormous pain. And you go to the doctor, he says, you just got to live with that. That's the last thing you want to hear, isn't it? I got to live with that? How can you be content in your suffering? Well, if you live for Jesus, you can learn to do that. Because Paul says that the contentment that he learned in his life, even in the midst of his suffering, came because above everything else, Christ would be honored. And Christ would be honored even in how he dealt with those sufferings in his body. He told the Corinthians that their physical bodies were temples of the Holy Spirit. And as such were instruments to bring glory to God. They knew what the temple was. It was something that was made holy and constructed for the very purpose of honoring God. And now you're telling me that my physical body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 17, Paul says, From now For now on I will let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. I think I'm ahead of myself, aren't I? I'm convinced in this context that Paul's perspective on life was a tool by which he could approach any circumstances of his life and be successful. If we suffer and we remain faithful, how does that reflect on Jesus? If you suffer greatly and you still remain faithful to God, you go through what most people could never survive and you still remain faithful to God. Have you known people that have done that? Lost a husband, a wife, a child when they were very young. Tragedy beyond imagination. And you look at their life on down the line, you realize there's one thing that they're still doing. They're still serving God. They have not abandoned God. Who gets the credit for that? The hymn we sing, our fathers chained in prisons dark, were still in heart and conscience free. How sweet would be their children's fate if they, like them, could die for thee. Could we ever describe our lives? Now, this is a serious question, I believe. and One that I ask myself a lot. In the troubling times in which we live. Could we ever describe our lives as Paul described his? In the same context, to live is Christ. That Christ is honored in my suffering body. We esteem our bodies, don't we? We're attuned to our physical bodies and not accustomed to discomfort. When we experience it, it sidetracks us in every way. We want to go in the other direction. We want to get rid of it. I'm not saying that's wrong to go to the doctor. Get rid of that pain. I'm trying to do some of that myself. But what would it be like to physically suffer for Jesus? What would that be like? I don't know that I know what it meant to physically suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ. There are those who have and there are those who do. And maybe there's coming a time in this place in which we live of great prosperity and great liberty when that will all change. And we'll be called upon to physically suffer for the cause of Christ. We'll be as the apostle was. Maybe put in prison, turned against by our own government. People will disgrace, will despise us and turn away from us because we serve Jesus. And we'll have to suffer for the cause of Christ. 
How far will we go? How far does Paul go in this aspect of his commitment? He says, whether by life or by death. All the way to the Roman sword, Paul said, whether by life or by death. He might get out of prison, he might not. Either way, the Lord will be honored because Paul would not abandon Jesus. Paul contemplates the two destinies before him and he says, what I choose, I cannot tell. Remember that phrase? What I choose, I cannot tell. Maybe I'll stay here. Maybe I'll go to be with the Lord. Betwixt the two, what I choose, I cannot tell. Now, some suggest that Paul's perplexed here, but doesn't really know, you see, what's going to happen to him and the uncertainty of it all, and maybe so. But I'm convinced that maybe the better way to understand that is Paul simply saying, this is not my choice. And he's refusing to make the choice. So he just says, whether this happens or that happens, the choice I've already made remains the same. Christ will be honored. The elders at Ephesus who met him on the beach in Miletus, Paul declared unequivocally, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry that I see from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. He told the brethren at Caesarea who were distressed about the fact that it had already been revealed and had been put in prison. What are you crying about weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready to not only be bound but to die at Jerusalem. Again, those words reflected upon my own life, you see, are challenging to me. He reminded the brethren at Rome, not not, not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both the Lord of the dead and of the living. If there's a word to underline in the the context particularly of our lesson maybe this morning, if there's a word to underline in your Bible, I would suggest in both of those passages we could underline the word weather. The word weather. You know, my my wife thinks weather is the most important thing that there is. She watches it every morning. (laughs) Keeps track of it. That's not the same weather. That weather is something important. But here's a more important weather. Whether you live or die. No matter what happens in your life. All the experiences that lay before us that we don't know about and some maybe that we've already experienced that we wonder about, no matter what those things, to live is Christ. And for the Christian to die is gain. After I preached this sermon a while back at, uh, at Southside, I had a gentleman who uh, wasn't a Christian. He'd been, he'd, been coming, he'd been coming for some time with his wife, who is a Christian. And uh, he listened attentively to what I'd say when I preach. He's very attuned to what uh, the lesson's about. And he came to me afterwards and he says, he says, Dave, I get the point about to live as Christ. He says, I understand all of that, that Jesus ought to be the focus of our life. But he says, what's that other phrase about? To die is gain. He says, I don't understand that. So we had a little discussion about it, about the fact that if a person's living for Christ, that's the only phrase that can come at the other end of that, isn't it? If to live is Christ, then what can we say about death? Is better. It's gain. And we had a discussion about the term gain there and profit and so on. But he walked away and he said, that's a pretty powerful perspective. How could a person ever think that it would be better to leave this world? And I said, only in Christ. Only in Christ. 
Christ would be honored. So the aspect here of living in Christ is something that we're going to try to explore a little bit as we go along here in the book of Philippians, and no doubt we'll, I think, join very well with the good lessons that Brother Jonathan is going to bring to us about the questions of Jesus. Is Christ everything to you? Here's what I know. I don't know if Christ is everything to you. You have to answer that question for yourself. But here's what I do know. Is you are everything to him. You are everything to Jesus. Jesus' mission was his whole focus. Jesus' mission was to seek and save the lost. Jesus' mission was the most important thing, and he followed it all the way to the end. In fact, there at the end, he expresses that. He says to the Father who sent him, not my will, but your will be done. It was on that basis that Jesus could face everything that he faced in his life and develop a perspective and an attitude that he expects of us. To live as Jesus is to live as Jesus as he died. To understand the gain of his life when he died is to understand the perspective of our life as we live it. One last thought. I can live for Christ because Christ lives for me. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25. He is able to save to the othermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Okay, Jesus, summarize your life in six words or less. He would say, I live to make intercession for you. I live to make intercession for you. Most powerful event in all of the universe when Jesus stepped out of the grave, came back to life again, never to die again. Why did that happen? Why does Jesus live? He lives to make intercession for you. And let me tell you, folks, you need it. And I did it. I need him to live for me, to make intercession. But if you turn away from the gospel of Jesus Christ, then there is no purpose in that. There is no gain if you die apart from Jesus Christ. So we invite you as we close this lesson, you need to be in Jesus. You need to be in a position where the blood of Jesus will cleanse you from all of your sins. And the intercession of Jesus will make you new again. You need to come repenting of your sins and being baptized for, uh, into the body of Christ so that you might rise in the power of the resurrection to a new life. Will you live for him? We invite you to come. Let's stand and sing the song that we've been announced.